This is Delicious Revolution, a show about food. So we made uh, these baked tamales called getavingi, and so it's a Czech recipe from the Isthmus, and it's kind of mixed tamales, corn that's been browned with lard and stuffed with chile and dried shrimp head mole. Yeah, they, they're kind of like, they, they taste like like cornbread. They prepared just a lot of like things that they find on the ranch, you know, that like the dogs suddenly bring in. So they, they prepare a lot of armadillo and iguana. Lots of things using dried chiles. They, they use a chile costeño, um, shrimp, corn, wild herbs, crab. So it, it just got me thinking a lot about, about how to get people engaged here and to other questions of what's happening in, in the Mexican countryside and, and the issues that are important to farmers. So those are things that I'm still sitting with and trying to understand how how to, in some ways, create encounters or create experiences that, that help burst the bubble a little bit. <laughs> Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place, made by Chelsea Wills and me, Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of the food movement, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists, and who have a vision for a different food system. This first season of Delicious Revolution, we talk to friends who are deeply engaged with many aspects of food, and who have inspired us over years with their thoughts and stories. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes, or your favorite podcast app, and you can find us at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills, and I'm here today interviewing Nikki Nakazawa. Nikki is a chef based in Mexico City. We met a few years ago at an artist residency in rural Michoacan. Since moving to Mexico City in 2007, Nikki Nakazawa has navigated between art, architecture, music, and food worlds. After several years working as a managing editor at Art and Architecture Publishing Houses, she founded the experimental pop-up restaurant and catering company Pichon with Emma Rosenbush and Kenny Curran. Pichon is a pop-up restaurant and project dedicated to culinary research and experimentation. It is inspired by the Chinampas of Mexico City, the culinary traditions of the Mexican countryside, and the gastronomic revolution that has transformed food culture. They believe that the best food is prepared with ingredients, grown locally and sustainably. They believe that food should be a vehicle for strengthening community from its cultivation to its consumption. The experiment began in 2012 and continues to produce culinary experiences that connect diners to an exploration of what it means to eat local in Mexico City. Hi, Nikki. Nice to be talking to you today. Hi, <laughs> to the show. Thanks again for the invitation. <laughs> of course. So I just wanted to start by hearing about how you started cooking and what drew you to food. Um, let's see. And I guess I've always cooked um, since I was a kid. Uh, my mom was not a big cook. She never seemed to have time to do it. She worked from home, but, uh, was kind of had her hands full with the, with my two sisters and I. So, um, I started cooking after school 
and making my own meals. And I always really liked it and kind of spent a lot of time hanging out with my grandparents and in the kitchens and, 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 uh, seeing what they were up to there. So it was something that started as a kid. And, um, I guess I started professionally, uh, three years ago, a little over three years ago when I started Pichon. Okay. Um, well, let's, let's go back. Let's, let's talk about before you were a professional cook. Um, I started with a kind of brunch project informally when I was in uh, college, my roommate's, were really amazing cooks as well. And um, one of my roommates in particular, uh, her older sister was like super into, into throwing these kind of elaborate dinner parties. Um, and so we kind of inherited this incredible pantry of just like crazy random uh, goods, everything from rose water to like, uh, all sorts of like Asian spices and Indian spices and everything. We just had a super amazing pantry to, to play with. So my roommates and I were all, it's kind of like a multicultural crew, a girl from Seattle, uh, a woman from uh, New York, but uh, a Uzbek um, background and um, a Mexican American girl and me. And so we just started kind of making these, these meals together and inviting our friends to hang out and drink and eat all day. So I guess that you could, you could say that that was the genesis of, of my thinking about food and bringing people together. Well, I only ask that because I feel like a big part of your story is like you were raised in the U S and you live in Mexico city. And I feel like I've only eaten with you and I've only eaten your food a few times, but I always feel like there's this part about it where there's this collision of worlds that's always happening that you seem to like. <laughs> yeah. um, and that, I don't know, that feels like that fits into that story to me. Um, and maybe you could talk about how Pichon started and yeah, what brought that about? Um, Pichon kind of started started a little bit earlier than um what we usually say is our official start date which was in may 2012 um this is because it was like an it was an idea that emma rosenbush and i had initially together and then coincided with a project of two architect friends of mine um, Damien uh, Figueras and Memo Ruiz de Teresa. So these are two friends of mine who um, they had space uh, in mind in, in Roma and had already started kind of negotiating on this space and had an idea of putting this uh, kind of cafe, cultural cafe together. And so while they were having this idea, we had the idea that we wanted to you know, have a kind of more food-driven concept because they were architects and thinking about all the other stuff that was going to happen there, but not, but not the food. Um, so um, one day talking to Mamon to Damien, they were like, oh, we have this idea for a cafe and, you know, maybe we could join forces. And so um, we were actually working on, you know, Pichon for something like eight months before we started on the pop-up. Um we were like around seven partners and uh, had kind of been negotiating on the space for a really long time. And just ended up being super complicated and the budget started getting 
larger and larger and larger. And, um, and me, Emma and Kenny kind of realized, you know what, I think that this is maybe getting a little out of hand and we, we just need to, to move on this and start doing something, even if it's not going to end up being a brick and mortar establishment. And so at that point, um, we decided that we were going to try out the pop-up model, which at that point was kind of becoming popular in places like uh, London and New York and, and other cities where rents were super high. Um, so there's this little Fonda um, a couple blocks from our house and Emma went to eat there one weekend or one so it was on a weekday and discovered that they closed on Sundays. And so she asked whether they would be willing to rent us the space on, on a weekend. And they said, yes. And so we were able to kind of to do our, our first event for something like uh, $20, <laughs> $20 rent. And, and that's how it began. That's a, that's a pretty good story that you kind of went in a big circle to start. It sounded yeah. like, um, and initially you were doing Pichon once a month. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We started out once a month and I think that was the, during two months and then pretty quickly it escalated to like you know, twice a month. And then it was every week, um, for about a year. Um, and that was because at our first pop-up event in that little funda, um, two of our friends came, um, again, an architect friend of mine <laughs> who had started another little cafe in, in San Miguel Chapultepec called Cafe Sena. And it was him and a group of architects, designers who had put together the space and, again, really considered the food concept, had, had, had an understanding about the potential of the space to be a platform for a lot of different types of activities. But, you know, the, the, the part about the actual day-to-day operations and what it would mean, uh, what they would be serving people was not completely uh, solidified or under, understandable to them. And so um, they were like, well, you know, we, we want to be open seven days a week and on Sundays if we have to hire people, then we'll have to pay them double or we'll have to have like a separate group of staff. So maybe that's a good day to, to do this kind of takeover. How did the three of you find yourself in Mexico city at the same time? And how did you and Kenny and Emma come together and start cooking? Well, I, I guess I, I was the first one to arrive in Mexico city. I've been here now since uh, November of 2007 so I'm coming up on my eight-year anniversary. It's kind of a long story uh, of how I arrived here, but um, just kind of in a nutshell, I um, was a student at University of Chicago in 2005, um, did a little program in Oaxaca uh, then and just totally fell in love and hadn't really known anything about Mexico before coming and started studying up and decided I was going to come in 2007 and see see what I could do here. Um, I thought it might be a year, and it just kept kept on staying and staying. Kenny came in a more random fashion. Um, His 
boyfriend, PJ Roundtree, who's another member of Pichon, but what just wasn't one of the founding members, but he was uh, a part of Pichon for a long time. Um, he was, uh, he went to RISD along with Kenny, um, and they were living apart for a while, uh, one in Philly and the other in New Orleans and decided, and PJ kind of had this fascination with Mexico city and, and decided that they were just going to come and, and figure it out. And so Kenny just moved to Mexico city. I think this must've been in 2010, 2010, um, with his cat and didn't know any Spanish <laughs> and just sorted it out. And so he, uh, was, he's a painter by trade, well, by training and then, uh, has been cooking in professional kitchens for the past 10 years. Uh, Emma was traveling throughout Latin America. Um, she had saved some money. She was working at, at an attorney's office. She was doing, um, some prison law work and uh, some prison advocacy stuff. And so she uh, decided that she wanted to travel around Latin America for six months. And so she was coming through Mexico and I had met her in college at some point. And um, she and I linked up again. We totally just loved each other again (laughs) and decided that we wanted to work on a project together. And so I kind of convinced her to to stick around Mexico City and see whether we could make something happen. Well, let's talk a little bit about Mexico City and why it's such an interesting place to do something like this. I know that you have worked with some some farmers in the southern part of the city, and I know that you've done a lot of different things in the time that you've lived there. You've worked with artists and architects and musicians and it seems like these food projects now they're like these moments of coalescence in a lot mm-hmm. of ways what does that feel like um that was like five questions in one yeah <laughs> i'm trying to see where to begin right here. uh i mean mexico city has the great part or like the great fortune of being um an incredible an incredibly dynamic place i mean there's a lot of things happening at once in a lot of different worlds um you can navigate within um that has a dark side as well which um is the fact that it's an incredibly class divided society uh and part of that dynamism is actually a result of inequality um so i think that one of these one of the, the magical feelings that you have when you first come to mexico city is a sense that wow every connected and you end up in these little worlds and and you get caught in this network feeling uh where uh yeah everybody knows everybody and it's all connected to this global scene and uh it's exciting and there's all and you and you get kind of this look into both the high and the low of of what happens in mexico city um so that's that's a an exciting and a really beautiful thing, but it also uh, in some ways um obscures a lot of the other things that are happening in Mexico that aren't that little magical little privileged web <laughs> uh, which is you know the reality of of 
the Mexican countryside, which is a reality of uh, drugs, which is a reality of a lot of other things that are that are very real and that are very much happening at the same time. Um, so I think that for me, having been in some ways uh, privy to this very, very privileged space in Mexico City, working in galleries and in publishing and, and um, having um, a direct connection or link to all these super global figures. Um, I was, uh, I, I guess I didn't know it super consciously, but then was looking for it. I was looking for a way to be connected to what all, the other things that were happening in Mexico. So I think that actually going to farms, going out, leaving the city and leaving the little bubble in which we are constantly just reinforcing our own class values <laughs> was important and um, very eye-opening for me. Um, so, so yeah, so we we started working initially with um, some friends who started this uh, farming pro- project in the Chinampas of Xochimilco. So this is the southern area of Mexico City. It's a canal system that uh, I think it's about... 200 kilometers of navigable canals. Um, and it's a crazy living archaeological ruin. So for there's a many, many reasons that this was extremely interesting to us. And one of them being that 80% of these chinas are in some state of disuse. So the utopic, like, dimensions or possibilities uh was tremendous and is tremendous still can you describe what they are for people who don't know what a chinampa is sure so this is a pre-hispanic farming technique um i guess it dates back to almost seven thousand years ago um they were agricultural islands that were formed by sinking these boats or reed structures and using the the mud from the bottom of the canals to sink them, and then um, inter kind of mixing them with with a lot of kind of organic material and and hay and whatever they found, and um, and then after they built them up enough, what they would do is plant these willow trees called this and these trees would they have a specific type of root structure with, which would compact the earth together. Um, and so these were, this is one of the earliest systems of uh, intensive irrigation. And um, Nesawakoyat, who was the Nahuatl uh, emperor and leader in the 1500s, he was um, slightly pre-conquest. Uh, he had created a system of dip dams in the lake system, which protected and sheltered this area from the salty waters of the, the northern part of Lake Tocco. But once the Spanish came, they started taking down all these um, this system of levees and dams, and and they kind of and they started draining the water. And so this system was lost for a period, and then um, over the course of you know, hundreds of years, has been various regimens of water in, in Mexico City in which they've drained the water and then 
returned the water and then uh, intubated or put the, the underground springs and rivers that feed this canal system, water system. And so it's, it's, it's a long story, but basically they're agricultural islands and um, that date back. And I, for me, whenever I've been there, I always sort of imagine them as um, they don't, they're not floating. They are actually like islands built in a lake, but they're always being constructed, right? So they're always being, there's always soil being added to the top. And they're these, they're incredibly fertile, dense little agricultural places that are managed in like all of these different ways that are as unique as all the different people who live there. Right. So, um, what are some of the things that go ahead? Yeah. No, that there, there, it's not, um, there aren't a whole lot of people living right there. I mean, there's some people living on the, the edges of the canals, but, um, but it's mostly used for there's recreational areas now and, uh, areas for growing ornamental plants. And then it's kind of a, an area where there's these types of gondola boats that go around and kids, teenagers just can, can get together, play music and and get drunk on on the boats. There's a lots of birthday parties and things like that, but there's, there's a a bunch of different um, ports or little docks that you can leave from. And so each dock has its own, characteristics and some are more commercial and others are more touristic and others are more focused on, on nature and, and rowing and other types of outdoor activities. So how did you meet the farmers that you work with as part of Petron? You started working with farmers who farm on on the Chinampas. Is that part of the story? How, what, what is that story? Well, this is a, a friend of my friend Memo, was the architect, and uh, he was in touch with these two kids who decided that they were going to start this um, organic farming project on the Chinampas. So um, we connected with them, and so they were the ones who had started linking up with different farmers there, which for them I know was a real challenge because there aren't there aren't a whole lot of people who continue to farm in the traditional way in in Sotinical. A lot of them are using chemicals, um, and then uh, economically, it's just not the best thing to do <laughs> within the city. If you're in the city, to be a farmer for a lot of young people seems totally ridiculous because you can probably earn more doing something else. So uh, the, the type of people or the, the type of, yeah, the type of folks who decide that they're going to farm in Mexico City, it's a, it's, a, it's a particular brand of stubborn, idealistic folk. So, um, so uh, Lucio and Tonio were, were the, the two people behind the company, Yolkan, have done a, an amazing job really seeking out people who, who really want to work in this way and see the value in it. So you were just in Oaxaca. You just did yes. a residency outside of Puerto Escondido at a place called Casa Wabi, right? And were right. you working with farmers there? And let's, let's, let's talk about 
farmers and food traditions and what makes sense and what doesn't make sense and how all those things happen at the same time. You, you got interested in working with farmers and where food came from. It sounds like before you started working with the farmers in the Chinampas, but then where did that go? I know that you're doing more work out of Mexico City. Well, I mean, one of the other things that happened while we were starting embarking on the, the Pichon project was that um, one of the first local organic markets started up in Mexico City. It's called Mercado del Cien. El Cien referring to 100 kilometers. So that means that all the farmers who are represented in this small farmer's market um, come from places that are around 100 kilometers from Mexico City. So that gave us a place to start. Um, so a lot of the farmers that we continue to work with um, are contacts that were made through that um, network. And um, a lot of them are in uh, Estado de Mexico, like the state of Mexico outside of um, the DF. And then some are in Morelos, some are in Hidalgo. And the way that we work with them is generally, I mean, it's pretty direct. We're, we're kind of just, um, since we're a pop-up and we're not as regular as uh a restaurant or any other type of food project really it allows us to to spend a lot of time hanging out <laughs> so we our relationships have often begun just going out to the the farms and hanging out and seeing what they're doing and and starting and finding ways that we can be more sensitive or or uh understand how they work and what products they need to get off their hands or what products they have uh, in volume at certain types of uh, times of the year. And it's, it's been a project of sensitizing ourselves to, to their, um, I mean, I certainly never had any type of background in farming or in agriculture. So this has been a huge ongoing lesson for me. Um, and, uh, especially understanding the way that, uh, Mexican traditional farmers work depending on um, the crops and depending on the geography of the place uh, that they're that they're dealing with. So a lot of these farmers farm in traditional milpa settings. So um, they're smaller plot, plots, and they actually are completely um, uncommercial in the sense that they often put more money into to growing than they actually can potentially earn from. From, from it uh, so they're so they're farming for their own consumption essentially and what do they grow uh, in the milpa they're growing corn beans squash chiles and, and, and you're buying things some of the time I mean do you have like a what does it look like? Do you have a lot of relationships with a lot of different farmers that you buy things from? Uh, we we do, um, but we're generally buying um, from the our farmers in the Chinampa. They'll send out a list of what they have available every week, and then we'll you know look through that, and then we work with an organic farmer in Cuautla and Morelos, and uh, we have we'll go to the organic market on the weekend and see what's available. So, you know, 
it, it can get pretty broad for certain types of things, but like generally we, we stick with around four or five providers. Cool. Let's talk about Oaxaca. What'd you do there? What was that project? Uh, so, um, I spent, yeah, I spent a little over a month, um, at Casa Wabi, which is this artist residency, just 30 minutes outside Puerto Escondido towards, um, Rio Grande. It's a, towards the north, the north, I guess. Um, and my intention was to do a small research project and document some of the recipes from the coast. And, um, that's what I started doing. I, I, uh, was lucky enough to have my boyfriend's actually from Puerto Escondido. So one of his childhood friends, um, offered his mother-in-law to me <laughs> and, uh, I went over to their house and she had this great brick, um, oven that her son built and, um, uh, like all this wood burning, um, stoves and ovens and places to, to play. And so we started, uh, she started teaching me some, some traditional recipes from the Isthmus of Tuantepec and, uh, uh, some other uh, recipes from the, um, she's Zapotec, so some traditional Zapotec recipes. And then I uh, ended up cooking with a relative who's from the, the Afro-Mestizo area coast. And we we cooked some traditional recipes that she knew and um, just spent a lot of time hanging out and cooking and shopping. And, and uh, it was a lot of fun. So... Um, I, I basically got the beginnings of, of what might be a little recipe collection of a lot of these women's, um, uh, recipes. And, um, there's still a lot of research to be done just because it's really hard to parse what, where things are from, because a lot of the recipes are, are, are kind of things that are repeated in a lot of the communities along the coast, but that have slight variations. Um, so were you trying to figure yeah. out where things were from as part of what you were looking into? Um, and so, yeah, in some ways. And, and, and the thing is, you know, also I, uh, I couldn't, I didn't come across this huge, um, uh, I guess ambition to do like this really like in-depth project just because also so much of everything has to do with building relationships initially and kind of getting a lay of the land. And this is the first time that I was spending um, any time in this particular part of the coast um, and getting to know what was happening there. So it was, it was a, it was a way to stick my toe in to see what, what, what's going on there and learn a little bit more about the history of, of, um, of the coast and the relationship between the different um, indigenous communities and, um, the Afro-Mestizo community. And so this is something that, um, is still greatly un- understudied. So I think that if anything, what I learned is that, um, a lot of work has to be done there and a lot of research has to be done there. And then you can start maybe creating a genealogy or understanding some of uh, the recipes and whether they have any origins in, uh, in Western Africa or, um, or, you know, just the, the relationship between um, just all these different communities that, that have, were isolated um, during many years until the, the, 
uh, first highway was built in the 70s. I love the idea of this of a genealogy of recipes. I think that's such a good description of how things are actually shared. What What are some of the things you cooked out there? Um, so we made uh, these baked baked tamales called getavingi, and so it's Zapotec recipe from the isthmus, and uh, it's um, kind of nixtamalized corn that then we ground uh, with lard, and uh, they're stuffed with this um, chile and, um, and dried shrimp head mole, and, um, and also stuffed with um, these dried uh, river shrimp. So yeah, they they're kind of like they they taste like uh, like cornbread. It tastes like cornbread in a way because they're baked, so it's a little bit drier. But has that uh, yeah a lot of they make a lot of preparations with shrimp. Um, did some yellow moles. Um, we prepared uh, tejon, which I think I forget what it what it is in English. I have to look it up. Um, but um, just a lot of like things that they find on the ranch, you know, that like the dogs suddenly bring in. So they, they prepare a lot of arm, uh, armadillo and iguana. Um, we made um, chipil, tamales of chipil. Chipil is a kind of wild herb, which they call quelites. So um, it's kind of like a, an alfalfa. So lots of Lots of things using dried chiles. They, they use a chile costeño, um, shrimp, corn, uh, wild herbs, um, crabs. Sounds so, sounds delicious. It's making me hungry to hear cool. about it. <laughs> yeah. What was it like to learn a place through its food or to? Yeah, I mean, what was that like as a starting point? Uh, uh, well, I think something that was interesting to me is I, uh, I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with women. So I, I suppose that since I always go to Portsmouth with my boyfriend and his family and he has three brothers, um, I've always entered into this male space in, on the coast and now, um, doing this project that was mostly around cooking, entering into people's family spaces and then also into like exclusively female spaces. I had an experience in some time and the types of conversations that happened there and the intimacies and, uh, that was, that was, that was really interesting to me. And, um, and I, and I guess I hadn't really understood that firsthand. Um, since I, well, yeah, since I had my first contact with, with the coast. So that was, that was really cool. Um, and, uh, and also I think that it's something, you know, food is something that people get really excited to talk about and, and everybody can, can go on, on and on. I mean, Mexico in general, I think like if you ask anybody what they like to eat or what their, their parents prepare, what they prepare in their families, uh, you know, celebrations, it's something that people can get really excited about. So, uh, that was, it was, it's a very kind of generous space to enter into. That's such a nice description of that. I, I think one of the things I love about food is that everyone's an expert and everybody has an opinion. Uh, 
Yeah. It's so easy that way, you know. Everyone has a lot to say. How do you how does that work come back to the work that you're doing with Pichon back in Mexico City? Um, well, in a, in a very almost superficial way, you could say that uh, I'm now you know, have events coming up and I'm going to pull upon some of those recipes and the, the things that I was taught while I was there to just, you know, for a difference. So I'm going to make some of the tamales that we prepared, um, but with like my own little twist. And so that's the, that's the kind of the first level that uh, I'll start pulling from that information or, or, or that inspiration. Um, and then, and then I don't know, I don't know. I get, it just got me thinking a lot about what, um, about how to get people engaged here and, and to other questions of what's happening in, in the Mexican countryside and, and the issues that are important to agriculture, uh, to, um, Farmers, Spanish is agricultores, so sometimes I'm like agricultural. <laughs> um, and uh, so those are things that I'm still sitting with and trying to understand how how to, in some ways, create encounters or create experiences that that help burst the bubble a little bit. <laughs> what, and what do you mean when you say that the bursting the bubble, like you were talking about before, with the class divide, or yeah, I mean, I mean that. I think that in Mexico City, um, it's easy because it's so large. I think that actually the the social groups become very small um, and geographically based because you can't easily move across the entire city uh, every day, right? So, so I think that, um, it, like in every city, I think that it, it can be easy to get into this navel gazing space. So uh, I think it's good to find ways to remind people to, to go outside <laughs> and to, and, and, you know, and maybe people are reading the news or maybe people are interacting with other, other realities through other means, but I think that sometimes it's good. It is a, is a nice way to, in a very visceral way to get people to think about things and, and you hope that you can make them think about things through the food <laughs> yeah i think that i think that's well put i think there's a lot to say about that in the context of mexico and everywhere but mm-hmm. um how do we what's next for you and how can we follow along with what you're doing um well what is next for me i i'm now consulting on another little restaurant project, which is something that uh, Pichon is now we've gone into the world of consulting and catering and things that are a little less um, demanding than constantly putting on events. So, you know, we, we, we try to do events open to the public um, every month, every two months. Um, but now we're, we're entering into like a more virtualized zone of, of consulting and, and almost work. Uh, behind the scenes work for other restaurants. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Now, um, I have some good, really talented friends working on a website for us. So hopefully we'll be live by the end of the year. And there um, we'll be providing updates as to what we're up to. Um, and that is pichon.mx. 
So you can find us there. Great. We'll make sure to include that in the, in the notes below, along with a few other things about you. Um, thanks so much, Nikki. It's really been nice to talk to you about everything you're up to. Nice talking to you, too. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place produced by Chelsea Wills and me, Devin Sampson. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and you can find us at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. You can get in touch with us there, too. If you like Delicious Revolution and you want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening.